and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined as always by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, gun control and the Second Amendment. And Richard, we record this episode in the shadow of another terrible school shooting, this one last week in Parkland, Florida, where 17 people were killed. And this has, as one might expect, uh, occasioned a lot of commentary about the state of American gun laws with the Second Amendment being, of course, the, the headwaters of all of them. Now, it's only within really the past decade that we've seen the Supreme Court really give us some clarity on its understanding of what the Second Amendment means. Walk us through what the court has said in those decisions and, and your thoughts on that reasoning. Well, the two cases are the, the Heller case in Washington, D.C., and the McDonald case coming out of Illinois. The first one is the way in which the Second Amendment applies to activities that take place in the District of Columbia. And the second one is whether or not the Second Amendment through the 14th Amendment is incorporated in some way, shape, or form so as to bind uh, the states under these circumstances. And essentially, I think the way in which one has to do this is to remember that the Second Amendment is part of a fairly complicated structure uh, that relates to the question associated with the uh, arming or the organization of the militia. Uh, 30-odd years ago, I actually represented the National Guard Association of Retired Officers, and I was immersed in the discussions of the militia clause. And I can still remember the initial comment was, somebody called me up and said, we understand you're an expert on the militia clause. And I gave a candid answer. What's the militia clause? And he said, you know the militia clause. And I said, you mean the Second Amendment? He said, no. Well, it was a very potent lesson because the militia clause is, in fact, the only instance of divided power that you see inside Article 1. And what it does is that the United States government has the power to set the discipline, that is the business regimen, by which the states um, uh, can train. And the theory is you have to have them set the discipline so the different militias, when called up into federal service, will be interoperative. Uh, but in ordinary times, these people are not subject to the rule of the federal government, but are under the command of their own stateside generals, colonels, and so forth. Uh, it turns out the president cannot unilaterally call up the militia, uh, but he has to be given authorization by Congress, and it can only be used to deal with such matters as disunion, insurrection, or foreign invasion. You cannot use the militia clause to send troops over to Europe, which then, in effect, led to the entire militia being drafted into the army uh, when World War I took place. And then there's a reference to the Second Amendment, uh, which says that a well-regulated militia being essential to the security of a free state, the right to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Uh, the Scalia opinion essentially said, drop the first half of this sentence and just put the second half on. The first part is merely surplusage. But if, in fact, you read this as an integrated document, what they're really telling you about it is, yes, the federal government may tell the states um, exactly how it has to discipline its procedures and its troops. But what it cannot do is it cannot basically ban what's going on. And so it's a prohibition on the federal government taking away from the states the autonomy to deal with these activities. If this is true, uh, then Heller turns out, in my view, to be wrong, because Heller involves the question of the District of Columbia. Uh, to most modern writers who care less about the first part of the militia operation under Article 1, it's quite clear you don't have an incorporation problem. It's just the federal government. To me, 
it turns out that the federal government can, at least as far as the Constitution is concerned, do more or less what it wants because federal-state relationships are not implicated. Similarly, if you want to say, as they do, that the McDonald case incorporates the Second Amendment against the states, that has to be wrong as well, because if this is a federalism provision preventing the federal government to doing things to the states, then there's no reason why it should bind the states with respect to its own uh, particular citizens. This doesn't mean that you can't have some protection for guns, but it's not going to come out of the Second Amendment. It's going to come out of privileges and immunities, for example, where you might say that one of the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the United States is the right to keep and bear arms, a line which people have toyed with, but which doesn't seem to be particularly consistent uh, with the legislative history, although it's not inconsistent with the language. So I tend to be a skeptic on all of the gun culture. And Justice Scalia took the opposite position. And what he said was, look, we knock out the first part of this thing, so we don't care about well-regulated militias. But we still have to recognize that, like every other right in the Constitution, the government has the power to limit your ability to keep and pair arms. And what he says, in effect, is that the test we are using is no longer a very low rational basis test. You have to show a real and substantial connection um, to some kind of public safety objective before you could ban these things. These words are not transparent. The Supreme Court has not gone back to the grubby particulars. And what you see in the states is a kind of a rear guard action where state guys essentially are very skeptical of Heller. And so they read the power of the federal or the state governments uh, to regulate much more broadly. One of these cases on waiting periods was brought up to the Supreme Court recently, and the Supreme Court didn't hear it. And Justice Thomas rebuked his colleagues, saying if this had been a waiting period with respect to abortions or your right to bring a sexual harassment case, you guys would be all over it as a restriction on rights. But now what you're doing is you're reducing guns to a second-class right. Um, I'm in the odd position. I think that Thomas is right if Heller is right, but I think Heller is wrong. And, and so what you do, at least on the constitutional stuff, is you've got some very, very deep cleavages and you don't have a great deal of clarity in my view. So let me pivot you from the, the legal analysis to the policy analysis because your, your reading of the Second Amendment is one thing, but that doesn't necessarily dictate your views on gun control as a policy matter, even though for most people there's an awful lot of overlap. But – Richard, how effective do you think some of these proposals we're seeing now about restricting the types of guns or the types of accessories or the amount of ammunition or who can get a gun, how far would any of that go towards cutting down mass shootings of the kind that we've been seeing all too frequently of late? Let me put it this way. I'm not opposed, but I'm dubitante with respect to all of these proposals, and let me explain why. Uh, what happens is the hardest thing that you're trying to do with when you're preventing these stuff is to figure out where in the chain of distribution uh, you begin your effective control. I'm an old-fashioned guy when it comes to these things. And so, for example, if you're trying to talk about who's going to be responsive for explosives that are used in commercial operation or for defective products or for automobiles or for airplanes, the initial presumption that you have is that the control of the party in possession is the place where you begin your legal analysis. And that's the guy who's always involved in these situations. That's the case where you know the pressure you're going to exert may have some stuff. And then what you do is in going up Upstream, you have to be very careful to make sure that the kinds of guys that you're getting into this system are ones whom you really want to stop. So to take product liability law from many, many years ago, the rule always used to be uh, that the guy on top would only be responsible for a mishap with a gun 
or with a co-soda bottle or something of the sort, if you can prove that the product was in its original conditions, it contained a latent defect, that is, it did not meet its own representational standards, which when used by the occupant caused harm in its ordinary use. So if you want to go back to the gun stuff, the early case called Langridge and Levy from 1837, well, what it says is if you give somebody a gun and it turns out that the steel casing is not strong enough and you fire it and it breaks in your hand, you can sue the manufacturer. But there was nobody but nobody in the field of product liability law who said that if a gun is not defective, you could go back and get the parties down the chain of distribution. And I think that that's basically a pretty solid instinct. So I can understand why it is that you want to put various kinds of controls on the people who shoot weapons. And the murder law is, you know, a perfectly good place to start. The problem is, of course, many of these people actually kill themselves afterwards or are killed by the police. Sometimes they want to. Occasionally, like the situation that we had in Parkland, uh, the killer Cruz, I guess is his name, um, was captured alive. And now we're going to have the nightmare of a trial. So if you go back upstream, what are you going to do? You're going to put a series of regulations in place, which are likely you you can substitute out. And so that means, in fact, you're going to limit the size of an ammunition case. That's great. But now they'll carry two. And you limit the power of a gun. Well, they may take the gun and alter it so as to increase the power that it has so it could use different kinds of weapons. Uh, if it turns out that you restrict the way in which people can buy guns, it turns out they'll get a friend to buy it for them or they'll steal the particular gun in one kind of place. And so what happens is, as far as I can tell, the abilities of people who use these guns, who are determined to commit mass crimes, to evade the regulations that are put in place are, in fact, I think, very great. So you have the following tragedy. It turns out these regulations will work at 99% of the population, but those are the people who are not going to shoot guns anyhow. It's that last 1% of the population, and it's very difficult to follow through advanced regulations of any sort the movements of these people. So I just don't think it's going to work very well. And it's also, I think, a mistake to concentrate exclusively on the mass killings because these are a tiny fraction of the total deaths. The ones that are really most high-frequency things are drug killing, contract killing, marital disputes, suicide types of situations, and so forth. And as best I can tell, if you're trying to handle those problems, you may think about counseling or other kinds of devices, but whatever is going to work for 99% of these cases is not going to work for the mass killing. So what you do is you have 17 people dead, and there may be several thousand people dead in each year, It is, I think, a mistaken policy to concentrate on the great tragedies associated with the death of less than 1% of the population without asking the question whether or not these regulations are going to help with anything else. So I tend to be skeptical. And then the question is, and I suppose you're going to ask this sooner or later, all right, Richard, what the world are you going to do in order to deal with this rather difficult situation? I was going to hang on to that one, but since you've raised it, Richard, why don't you go ahead and answer that question? Oh, well, I mean, we are basically a pair of yes-men, aren't we? <laughs> uh, and, and look, this is the issue. You, What you do is the first thing you have to ask about what do you think is the frequency and intensity of these unlawful activities? And that's a very hard question to answer. Uh, but what is typical is you start to move into societies where killings and knifings are very common. What happens is people do not give up on the ex-ante control systems, you know, the registration and so forth, but they basically arm their skilled individuals from the police 
or from the military to carry weapons at all times. So in Israel, um, there were a spate of killings that took place when people, young women typically, were knifed at bus stops in West Jerusalem uh, by thugs that came out of the Palestinian rank. And there's no way you're going to be able to stop knives by any system of inspection. And so that became the preferred weapon. What you have to do is you have to be very aggressive. Sometimes you round people up and you run the risk of getting too many people in. Or what you do is you make sure that the fellow who's 72 years of age standing next to the 26-year-old girl is a retired military officer who can take out his weapon. And a gun against the knife is very favorable odds indeed, although it's by no means perfect. And the Israelis do that routinely. Is the situation in the United States dangerous enough so as to warrant a similar response? And somebody could legitimately argue at Parkland High School, the answer is probably not. But if you go to some inner city schools with high crime rates, I think it probably is. The interesting feature is it's probably at all of these relatively bucolic places there or in Connecticut, for example, where all of the mass killings start to take place. So again, you're not quite sure whether these guns do or do not have use. Uh, what you hope is that they will even reduce the possibility of cases in which somebody wants to kill just one or two people, knowing in effect that retaliation is there. So that is, I think, what one starts to think about. And one has to be very guarded. I don't think you could be optimistic about this. But at least in certain places, I would believe that that's appropriate. Here's another piece of evidence. You start looking at police forces in the United States. Probably the number of people who were deputized and approved to use guns uh, by private police forces exceeds those in public police forces. And where do these guys hang out? They're in jewelry stores, right? Um, and it turns out they're in the lobbies of posh places on one quarter or another. And I know in Chicago, you know, where I live, uh, we're right around the corner from Farrakhan. And we think that those guys are carrying weapons of one sort or another. And it's amazing. There have been no burglaries in the immediate neighborhood by virtue of the fact that those guys are out there. Now, is it causal? I don't know. But, you know, you have to make your guesses. So I think what happens is the reason why this thing is so difficult is my proposal would be to go downstream, not upstream, but I don't think it's going to make a difference. What you're doing, in effect, is you have these very low-frequency, highly chaotic events. In order to capture them, you have to have a system of social controls that's going to work at 99.99%. And there's nothing anybody can do with any of these proposals that gets you up to that particular level. The danger, of course, is that if you push too high, and spend too many resources on gun stocks and on registration statements and waiting periods and so forth, this also has a cost. What you do is you expend social resources, and you're not getting anything by way of return from it in terms of gun control or anything else. So my own instinct about this is rather than being precipitate about this, is you really want to look around and see if there's something that's worked. And if you can find that you want to introduce it, you have to be extremely careful about making international comparisons. You know, there's a very high rate of gun ownership in Switzerland, and there's a very low rate of crime. In Australia, they managed to wipe out all the guns, and it seems to have worked. But in the United States, when you have basically more than one gun per person, you're not going to get them all back in. And if you manage to get all of the lawful guns out of circulation and leave the unlawful ones in circulation, not clear what the effect is going to be. What's amazing about this is how little we know, given the amount of effort that we've put in to understanding what's happening. 
you mentioned just a moment ago there the the bump stocks. Now th- this is a, a modification that can be used on semi-automatic weapons to increase the rate of fire. It was not used in the shooting in Florida, but it was used in the terrible one in Las Vegas a few months ago. And on the day that we're recording this, we've seen a proposal from the Trump administration where the way it's being reported is that the president is instructing the Justice Department to work up regulations to affect the ban of bump stocks. Richard, is that something that's within the power of the president to do unilaterally? No. I mean, we do have a system of separation of powers, which requires that legislation be passed by Congress and the regulations to implement it can certainly be done and routinely are done by the executive branch. But unless you could find some existing source of authority under federal law to do this, uh, then it cannot take place. And the last thing you want to do is to have the uh, Justice Department divert resources, get themselves shot down, quite literally, where what you'd rather have is if somebody could come up with a serious proposal to do it. What would be the effect of this legislation or the assault rifle ban and so forth? I would think the answer in these particular questions would be negligible. I want to remind everybody, including myself, unfortunately, that the greatest disaster that we had in terms of mass killing in the United States was still the Oklahoma bombing. And what did they use? Fertilizer. And so what happens is that you always have to worry about the shift away from guns. If you look at the tragedy that has taken place in England or in Barcelona, what do they use? They use cars. Uh, So it turns out you don't need to have a weapon as such to do these things. You could convert things that we can never ban, uh, like, you know, fertilizer and cars, and turn them into weapons of destruction. And so even if you're effective with respect to the guns, somebody may decide that they're going to escalate. It's very difficult, I think, to really come up with something. And what happens is the realist said, oh, my God, are you sending these things on something that works? And the idealist and the moralist, they're just so impatient for something that they will try something which may not succeed because they cannot bear the moral vacuum that exists if they actually do nothing. The last thing that I'll ask you, there has been talk in the aftermath of this shooting, as with many of them in the past, that there needs to be a greater emphasis on interdicting these individuals before they ever have the chance to commit the shooting. And this is an argument that you hear a lot, especially from people who aren't terribly enthusiastic about gun control, but think that we need to address mental health issues, pour more resources into that. And you've seen a lot of criticism, for example, of the FBI in this Florida case, because they had been warned that the young man who did the shooting was publicly making known his intention to to shoot up a school. To what extent, Richard, is that a viable policy lever to try and get these people ahead of time? Well, I think it turns out that there are two different kinds of cases. And uh, essentially, the argument goes back to a case from 1976 called Tarasaw, in which the question was whether or not the police, when somebody announced that he intended to murder his girlfriend, they let him go out and the murder took place. And it turns out that what the court said is, we can basically hold you responsible because either you can find the person or you give a duty or warning to the person who's going to be injured in order to obviate this. The question was then whether you expanded this thing to somebody who made generalized threats that they were going to kill somebody somewhere. And the answer that one came up with is you don't get any tort liability out of that. But then the question is, what do you get by way of civil liability or criminal liability? And this is the position I would take. Uh, The only cases that I would be prepared to move on would be those in which I think that somebody says that he intends to kill a particular person 
or damage people at a particular kind of institution like the skill, and then you run it very close. The hard part, even with respect to those cases, is this a joke or is it something serious? And, you know, if you're going to have one case that you have to look at, like this situation with Cruz, you can spend a lot of resources on it. But suppose you now put yourself back in real time and you've got 8,472 such reports. It's a lot more difficult when you're doing this ex ante to figure out which are the ones you pursue and which ones you don't. And that's why, in effect, that the FBI is going to always fail, even if it gets a 98% effectiveness rate, because one of these people in that 2% will start to slip through. But at least that's the population you look at. For the rest of it, there are so many people who are depressed, have mental anxieties. It turns out that they're worrisome, they're withdrawn, they're depressive or whatever it is. And if you're going to start to investigate those people, you're going to get, you know, 10 million people every year. And you're going to have so many false positives on this thing that everybody will be essentially crazy. Uh, So I think it's a modest idea that you should try to do it. But the first portion of this particular thing is to figure out how you narrow down the class of potential examinees to do it. When you do this, you're going to get the civil libertarians coming after you. Uh, because it used to be that preventive detention, uh, civil commitment and so forth was fairly popular in the United States up to the earlier mid-70s. And then what happens is everybody says, you're locking this guy up, he hasn't committed a crime, there's a violation of substantive or procedural due process, you have to stop it. And so we tended to do much less of this, which gave rise to the risk of these kinds of situations. My guess is we probably went overboard then and we're probably a bit of too lax now, but it's very difficult to simply use abstract generalities to say we ought to do more and try to make it act you know, operational stuff. How much more with respect to which people, what programs, what do you do with people who change locations, move across state lines, go off to college, come back home again? You could give yourself a thousand things that it's very, very difficult to track. So again, I mean, my basic conclusion, having you know thought about this for a very long time, is when you have a society of 325 million people, no matter what you do, every several years, you will have a tragedy of this particular sort. And the only thing you could do is wish Godspeed so that as few people will get themselves involved in this, but there's no magic bullet, no combination of programs that will work. The one that I'm most serious about is in certain high-risk neighborhoods is basically having people on the ground who essentially know how to use firearms. I think it might help a little bit. And certainly when you have open you know, open air events like the ones that you had in Las Vegas. I don't want people just sitting around there. I want a helicopter in the air. I want cameras on the particular sites and so forth uh, so that you can basically get better information on this and maybe shoot the guy down before he shoots everybody else. Um, This is not, I think, a foolproof scheme. I know that people have objections to it about these things could miscarry. Uh, But if you think back to what happened in places like England, it was the cameras that caught the people in the subways. If you think about the Sarniev brothers, when they did all that stuff in Boston, it turned out Massachusetts didn't want cameras, but Macy's or one of the other large department stores did, and that gave them the clue to break this stuff. And I think we have to be careful about this, understand privacy is important, but to collect the information and don't utilize it until you have cause for doing so when there's bloodshed or mayhem that takes place on city streets. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. Remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org, and you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.